This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast this week. A new long-term record of tropical climate. And the first pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm Nick Petrichell. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up on the show. To get an understanding of the history of the Earth's climate, we often look to things like ice cores, layered histories of ice and snow. But for the tropics, long-term records like these have been markedly absent. Now, a team of researchers may have found an alternative way to see into the climatic past of the tropics. Anand Jagatir is here with more. The last ice age ended just under 12,000 years ago, a time when the climate was obviously much colder and ice caps and glaciers covered a lot more of the globe's surface. Earth has had at least five of these major planetary cold spells, called glacial periods, punctuated by warmer interglacial periods when the ice retreats. We can reconstruct how the climate has cycled between these extremes using natural archives that capture information about their environment as they form. One example is ice cores, cylinders of ice extracted from places like Greenland or Antarctica. As layer after layer of water freezes in these areas, the physical properties of the ice down through the core can be used to work out ancient temperatures, going back hundreds of thousands of years. But that's not the case with ice cores in the tropics. I think the, the longest one might go back about 20,000 years. And so it's not a, a deep, thick continuum of ice like we would get in Greenland or Antarctica. This is Donald Rodbell, a geoscientist at Union College in the US who studies the history of glaciation in the Andes. In the absence of big enough ice cores, researchers like Donald could turn to another kind of record, material on the ocean floor. 
As sediment sinks and builds up on the bottom of the sea, its properties can be used to work out how much of the world's water was locked up in ice at different points in time. But it turns out that that signal, known as global ice volume, is completely dominated by the ice in the northern hemisphere, where at least three quarters of all the ice on the planet has been found. We call it the global ice volume record, but it's really largely a, a northern hemisphere ice volume signal. So we don't know what's happening in the tropics from the global ice volume record because the little glaciers in the tropics, as spectacular as they look, are tiny in their volume compared to the big ice sheets, and so they don't really matter. But now scientists have found a record of the glaciation in the tropics that lets them look back further than ever before. Sediment from the bottom of a lake in Peru. Before this, Donald says, the best record in the tropics was difficult to date accurately, passed around 125,000 years or so. But this one stretches back 700,000 years into the past, down through the mud beneath Lake Hunin. This is a very unusual lake. It's sort of like a Goldilocks lake. It's not too far from the glaciers and not too close. And whenever there were glaciers in the mountains around the lake. They ground up rock as glaciers do, like giant、um, belt sanders, tools of abrasion, and they produce a lot of rock flour. It literally looks like powder when it's dry and feels like flour, and it ends up in the streams of meltwater coming off the glaciers, and it ends up dominating what is accumulating in the bottom of the lake. And in the interglacial periods, the glaciers pretty much disappeared, and the lake became dominated by a very different type of, of sediment. So in that record, then we could say, okay, we have an ice age, we have an interglacial period, we have another ice age, and we could kind of work our way down through a hundred meters of mud, documenting the presence or absence of ice. So the presence or absence of this rock flour tells you whether glaciers were moving through the mountains around the lake, crushing the rock to dust as they went. It's an incredibly useful record, but extracting a core from the hundred meters of sediment below a lake isn't easy. In fact, it's a huge undertaking. We needed a platform the size of a tennis court, and we needed, you know, hydraulics and heavy equipment. Well, first we needed access to the lake. The marshlands around the lake make it impossible to, you know, access the lake. So we literally had to dig a little canal to get some of the early craft out into the lake. And、then we needed to get a platform. We rented a, a modular system from Houston, Texas, and shipped it to Lima. And this, this is sort of like a, a really large Lego pieces. We had to get a crane delivered to the lake edge, also from Lima, and it's about an eight or ten hour drive through a very treacherous canyon. And so we we got first we got the crane, and then the truck started to arrive, and the crane would offload these Lego pieces, and they were assembled in. In the canal, once the platform was assembled and taken out into the deepest point of the lake, the crew could get to work on drilling and extraction. So you can imagine a three-meter-long straw, three to four inches in diameter, being pushed down into the mud, and then it would be extracted, brought up to the platform at the surface, and the science crew would extrude it and describe it quickly and ship it back to our. Uh, nearby lab for some more analysis, and eventually shipped home. The coring would continue down at three meters at a time until we hit something we couldn't get through. We were coring for about six weeks, twenty-four、uh, hours a day. We had a night crew and a day crew, and 
each crew would go for 12 hours. But in the end, it, it worked out uh, remarkably well. After this mammoth operation had been completed, the team began analysing the cause. Using radiocarbon dating and other techniques, they were able to work out the age of the different layers of sediment. Then, looking for the presence of glacial rock flour, they started piecing together a chronology of the ice ages in this region. Overall, there is a remarkable similarity between the timing of the ice ages in the tropical Andes and global ice volume, again, primarily a northern hemisphere signal. And so that was this is really the first time we can say that over 700,000 years that the, the timing is really locked in. But then there were also some differences. So we sort of compared the magnitude of glaciation and found that there were intervals where the tropical glacial cycles were bigger uh, relatively than that you would expect them to be compared to the, the global ice volume signal. And this, uh, we believe, is maybe due to enhanced precipitation, snowfall in the Andes that would make larger glaciers than you might otherwise expect. But for the most part, this new core reveals that largely the climate was in lockstep the world over. So what might explain why the Ice Age record is so tightly correlated around the world? This particular paper, the Hunin record, provides substantial new data to uh, further that hypothesis that it was greenhouse gases that dragged the other regions of the globe that are not the Northern Hemisphere high latitude regions, dragged them to march in sync with uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And that's about the only mechanism that we know of that could tie the globe together so tightly. So as well as telling us about what was happening in the tropics during the ice ages, the record also tells us that the Earth's climate has been connected across different regions and hemispheres for many millennia. Each time it seems that greenhouse gases were pushing the climate around the globe in new directions. And Donald says that that can offer us some perspective on the state of the climate today. When you study these things that happened in deep time and you see the profound effect that they had on the landscapes under what were relatively modest natural changes in greenhouse gases, and then you look at what humans are doing, it's, um, yeah, it, it does more than give you pause. It sort of makes you stay up at night. And I think these perspectives are really important to get out to policymakers to really kind of understand the magnitude of what we're beginning to see in climate records and modern climate today. That was Donald Rodbelt from Union College in the US. To find out more about this research, check out the show notes for a link to the paper. Coming up, we chat to one of nature's resident astronomy buffs, Alex Whitsey, about the first pictures that have come from the James Webb Space Telescope. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Noah Baker. Snapping shrimp, although tiny, can generate shockwaves that travel through water at supersonic speeds. And researchers have now shown that the crustaceans protect their brains from the blasts with special helmets, the first known biological armour against shockwaves. Big claw snapping shrimp make mighty snaps with their claws, forming bubbles that then collapse, creating shockwaves which stun their prey and rivals. And now a group of researchers in the States have tested whether a helmet-like extension on the shrimp's carapace, called the orbital hood, could protect it from its own shockwaves, as well as those of its rivals. 
After being exposed to a pier snapping its claw, shrimps that had had their orbital hoods removed seemed disoriented and had trouble coordinating their movements. And seeing as the shockwaves that shrimps experience from their own snaps are similar to those felt by their targets, orbital hoods might also protect them from their own punches. The researchers found that orbital hoods can halve the magnitude of the shockwaves, probably by trapping water and then expelling it, a process that might redirect some of the wave's energy. You can read more about that study in Current Biology. Did you know that storing white wine in clear glass bottles can damage its quality? And it's all down to light. Some wavelengths can degrade wine's smell, creating odours described as wet dog or boiled cabbage. Manufacturers are increasingly selling wine in clear glass bottles to show off its colour, but those bottles also let in the damaging light. To understand just how light alters a wine's chemistry, a group of researchers set up an experiment using over a thousand bottles of white wine, some colourless and others green, placed under simulated supermarket light conditions. Using various techniques to analyse the wine's volatile compounds, they found that the wines in clear bottles had more than 70 molecules degraded by light. After only seven days, the concentration of some of these molecules, which are associated with positive aromas, fell by as much as 70%. But wines stored in green bottles were protected from the changes, even after 50 days. So were control wines kept in darkness. What's more, losing compounds associated with positive smells doesn't only degrade the wine's bouquet directly, it also reduces the compound's ability to mask less pleasant aromas. You can sniff out that research in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA. Next up on the show, after more than two decades of development... Billions of dollars, many delays, and some pretty tense moments, the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope have arrived here on Earth. To get a grasp of what these images mean for science, Nature's Alex Witz is joining me here. Hi Alex, how is it going? Good, how are you Nick? I am good and I'm excited to talk about these images. I was waiting with bated breath for them to come and waiting and waiting and waiting but they did eventually get here. But I was only waiting for a few hours, you've been reporting on this for... I want to say since the very beginning of James Webb, like how does it feel to finally see these images? It has been a very long time. It's been in the works for a very long time. It's been through a lot of delays. There have been so many times it didn't seem like it would launch, something would go wrong. Who knew if this thing would work? Obviously, the big deal here is this is the most sophisticated space telescope that anybody's ever sent up. It has an enormous mirror. It's incredibly complicated. The design and engineering is unlike anything anyone's ever done. So getting it built, getting it launched, and getting it to work in space were just a series of extraordinary events that... Yeah, if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, I would not have imagined. And so the first image was released on Monday. And well, this is an audio medium, so I'll do my best to try and describe it. It kind of looked like some kind of high definition stars to me, but I've heard it described as sort of the deepest astronomical image yet. What can you tell me about this first image? Yeah, it is the deepest image ever taken. And what that just means is 
the telescope stared at a patch of sky for a little over 12 hours and like sort of before breakfast to put together this amazing image. So the image is full of galaxies. Think about a starry sky, but not just individual stars. These things are galaxies. All of them are amalgams of other worlds, other stars. So everything you're seeing in there is something like our Milky Way galaxy. And they are so, so much farther away. If you look at the image, things are distorted, kind of strung out, kind of, it looks like they're smeary. A lot of them are red and smeary. And that's because there's this massive cluster of galaxies between us and what we're looking at. And it's distorting the light. It's kind of working like a magnifying lens. So when you look at this first image, you see lots of light. You see lots of smeary things. You see lots of red things. And that's because you're looking at the distant universe being magnified through this magnifying lens. And things are red because the universe has been expanding and light has been shifting towards the red over the history of the universe. To me, it looks like you're just diving into a swimming pool of galaxies. And that's just the first image that came out. Then yesterday, there were four more images What can you tell me about these? They are designed to show off the strengths of the Webb telescope. So we're all familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope, which has done amazing pictures over the years. You see beautiful pillars of dust, you know, galaxies whirling around in space. So we're used to these gorgeous Hubble images. So unlike Hubble, Webb works in infrared wavelengths. And the first set of images that came out this week are meant to demonstrate what we can see in infrared light that we can't with something like Hubble, which barely goes there. So for instance, there's a set of galaxies called Stefan's Quintet, and there's five galaxies and they're all mushed together doing weird things. With infrared light, you can see how they're interacting with each other really well. So you see these knots of star formation, these big bright bubbles of light where these galaxies are kind of coming together. And those are popping out because we're looking with infrared eyes. And so I guess they look super striking. They're very beautiful images. And you've talked a little bit there about us being able to see things we weren't able to see before. What do these images mean for astronomers and what are we able to sort of determine from them? So there's a lot of big questions that Webb is trying to answer that we haven't been able to do before in astronomy. Questions about how stars are born and how stars die. Those are things that happen in dusty regions that you can only see with infrared light how galaxies have evolved throughout the universe. I mean, Webb was built essentially as a time machine to be able to look as far into the distant universe as possible, which gets you closer and closer back to the Big Bang that created the universe. So we'll be able to see farther. And what are these galaxies essentially at the dawn of time? What do they look like? We haven't seen those before because we haven't had a ginormous machine with infrared light. And then lastly, and this was not a really good picture from this week because it's a spectrum, so it's a squiggly line. (laughs) But one of the astonishing things about Webb is it will be able to tell us about the atmospheres of other worlds. So exoplanets, they're called, right? 5,000 or more worlds that we know of around stars other than the sun beyond the solar system. And this is a field that didn't even exist when Webb was being dreamed up. We hadn't even discovered the first exoplanets. But it turns out that Webb, with its infrared eyes, is really great at looking at the light passing through the atmospheres of these planets. And so spectra sound boring, but it tells you what's there. Is there water in that atmosphere? Is there methane? Is there carbon dioxide? And then you start to get a sense of, wow, if there's a rocky world that has methane and water in its atmosphere and there's clouds, hey, could that be like Earth? And we haven't had that before. And Webb is going to just like something like a quarter of the time of Webb is devoted to looking at exoplanet spectra. Again, sounds boring, but it's 
what are other worlds? What are they like? Oh, well, that sounds very tantalizing. And what has been the reaction from astronomers? Everyone was sort of waiting with bated breath, I know, but now it's here. What's the reaction? Well, the internet lost its mind. Uh, Twitter <laughs> definitely lost its mind. Astro Twitter went out of control. Their minds are boggled, right? I called a couple of astronomers fishing for quotes and every, like three different people said, I'm amazed. I'm like, I can't have three astronomers saying I'm amazed. Please use another word. <laughs> you know? But they are, they're completely amazed. So for instance, that deep field image, that distant galaxies with all the smeared galaxies we talked about, they're downloading the high res of that, which is like 182 megabytes and they're panning in and they're looking around and they're trying to get a sense what this, this distant realm is like. Yeah, Astro Twitter lost its mind this week, for sure. <laughs> and one thing I wanted to touch on as well, like there have obviously been delays and it's taken a long time to get here. One of the things with the James Webb as well is there has been this push to rename the telescope. James Webb was very influential at NASA and was very important for keeping science very prominent there, which is why the telescope was named after him. But in his other roles in government, it seems he may have been complicit in the persecution of LGBT people. Now the images are here, have there been any sort of renewed calls to rename the telescope? With the launch, there's been certainly renewed attention on that. Uh, the group that led the petition to rename the telescope has resurfaced that this week. There's a new documentary that came out from a group called Just Space Alliance a couple of days ago that sort of looks at Webb's history and kind of his role in government during this period. So there's definitely been resurfacing. A number of folks say that their excitement about the new images has been tempered by their concerns. So it's definitely a conversation that's going on. Mm, and I'm sure it's a conversation we'll be monitoring here at Nature. But thinking about the telescope itself, what what's sort of next for it? And what would you like to see? What would be your favourite picture to be able to see from the telescope now it's sending back images? I want to see more of these like deep universe things because I just love those again, it feels like you're falling into a swimming pool of galaxies, the distant universe, like the edge of edge of time, almost right edge of space and time, it feels like you're falling into. So I want to see more of those smeary blobs from the edge. To me, it just seems incredible to be traveling through time with these images. We just haven't had that before. The Hubble, you know, will take pictures of here's one distant galaxy and we know a little bit about it, but Webb is really going to reveal that in all its detail. I would love to see also images of exoplanets that's going to happen sort of a bit later in Webb's tenure right now it's getting all these spectra which are those wiggly lines but it will be doing some direct imaging and I can't wait to see some of that as well too so there is lots coming there certainly is and I'm looking forward to changing my desktop background at least five more times in the next few weeks but I think that's all we've got time for so thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me Nick nature's Alex Witsey there for more on this story and for some image-based insights, make sure you check out a new story written by Alex in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat where we discuss some of the stories found in the Nature Briefing. So I'm slightly cheating today because I would like to tell you about a very cool paper that I've actually made a film on. So usually I leave the film plugs till the end, but this time the whole briefing chat is just going to be a sort of secret film plug. But I'm going to tell you all about the very cool research as well. I'm not sure it counts as a secret film plug if you tell me it's a secret film plug, <laughs> but I am very intrigued. Tell me about the video. I guess start off like, what's it about? So it is about crystals made of starfish embryos 
What? Um, Well, yeah, exactly. That's that's what we thought when we first heard about this paper. So we had to go and find out what on earth that was about. And this led me to the field of active matter physics, um, which is not something that I knew much about before making this film, but is very important context as to why the researchers in this film were looking at starfish embryos and making crystals out of them so this field of active matter this is just about starfish embryos that's what i'm getting from this no so starfish embryos are the particular organism being studied in this lab in this paper but active matter is really broad actually so active matter it's a term that physicists use when they are looking at systems and almost sort of materials that are based on components sort of the individual entities that are active. And what they mean by that is that they are consuming energy and moving under their own power. So starfish embryos being alive, being living organisms are one such thing, but there are lots of other things in particular, living organisms that do fall into this category of active matter. And one of the easiest examples to grasp is birds in a flock in the sky, a murmuration of starlings, say, as, as we see in this country. And each of those starlings is obviously moving independently. It's active. It's, it's using energy to create its own movement. And it's also following simple rules like stay aligned with the bird next to you. But when you look at the whole flock, you see emergent properties, shapes, sort of waves and strange patterns that form. And active matter physicists look at that whole sort of system and say, okay, what are the rules at the individual level that are leading to these strange properties, such as the sort of shimmering of a flock of birds that you see at the larger scale? Ah, right, gotcha. So I'm guessing then, in this particular case, the starfish embryos have some sort of emergent property. They're doing something together that physicists are sort of interested in. Yeah, and they're not quite as complex as starlings or other birds. In fact, they look remarkably simple they do not you'll be disappointed to learn look like tiny starfish with cute little legs Um, they are just in fact round at this stage and they don't do much but one of the things that they do is that they spin in the water so they'll come up to wherever the sort of surface of the water is if you have them in like a little dish say and they will just rotate and they tend to all rotate in the same direction And what the physicists noticed was if you get a bunch of them in a dish, now you can see this in the video, but it's all sped up footage because they're quite slow. So this is over a long period of time. As more of them come together and spin, they start to sort of line up. It forms a very sort of regular arrangement. So imagine sort of rows and columns, almost like a grid, a lattice of these little round starfish embryos. And one of the things that particularly interested the physicists is that this sort of regular lattice arrangement is very much like what we would call a crystal. If it was Mm. made of atoms, that, that material would be a crystalline material. So this is a crystal that's made up for the first time, of living multicellular organisms. Oh, wow. So this is the first time that such a thing has been observed? As far as the researchers know, yeah. And they were very interested to see this. And they published this paper in Nature, basically looking at, as I mentioned, sort of what are, the, what are some of the rules behind how this is happening? And also, what are some of the properties of this big crystalline structure. And have they been able to answer some of these questions? Do they know what the rules are that the starfish embryos are playing by? Well, like I said, it's a very basic 
movement that they're doing. What each individual embryo is doing is just spinning. But you can see, and they had to use a microscope for this because these are very, very small. When they are coming together, they're all spinning in the same direction. And the forces between them in the water that they're in is causing this alignment. And by kind of studying those forces and figuring out what's going on, there's the potential to be able to maybe even like recreate something like that with man-made creations, man-made entities. And what would be the sort of aim in recreating a weird starfish crystal, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a long way off. This is not a paper that intends to provide an application. But in the field of active matter physics, some of the ideas are if these sort of cool things are happening in nature, in many examples, the idea is could you recreate some sort of weird material where you're providing energy to the individual entities to sort of recreate some of the effects. It's not necessarily the case that sort of spinning and forming a crystal is necessarily going to be useful, but this is exactly the kind of thing that active matter physicists are interested in. Wow, this sounds super interesting. It's almost like the sort of thing I would want to see. Like, where might I be able to see it, Charbonnet? <laughs> it is It is cool to watch. Um, so yeah, it's, it's there on our YouTube channel. So that's YouTube dot com forward slash nature video channel there'll be a link in the show notes um and they've got some cool microscope footage um that the lead author sent me of the little little stuff embryos. you can see them um spinning and you can see them coming together and forming these sort of big rafts of sort of floating crystals in the water wow that's super cool i did not think i was gonna be talking about starfish embryos when i got this morning but it sounds absolutely fascinating thanks for that shamney and listeners if you want more stories like this one while you're in the show notes checking out the video make sure you check out the link there where you can sign up to the nature briefing that's all for this week as always you can reach out to us on twitter we're at nature podcast or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com i'm shamney bundell and i'm nick Chow. thanks for listening Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.